Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 28th, 2020, and this is episode 2762 of the Survival Podcast. This is part two in a two-part series. We did part one yesterday, John Pugliano on permanent unemployment and in just a moment, we'll kind of install you right back into where we cut off yesterday. I've pulled about, oh, the last two minutes, maybe minute is more accurate, about the last minute of yesterday's show into today's show to kind of create an overlap so you kind of catch you up. But when we go back in with John here in just a minute, we will uh, be talking about the fact that there are some benefits to being an employee and what it's like to be an employer. And we're going to quickly then transition into discussing, well, what did we do about all this? We, I think we've done a pretty good job up to this point in this interview with John, uh, the two of us working together to find the issue. So what, where does the opportunity lie? How do we adapt to this? Some of us are going to do it by becoming better at marketing ourselves, and we're going to remain employees. Some of us are going to do that. Not We're very clear, John and I both, as much as we believe that the best path that you could take, if it's right for you, is entrepreneurship. The key is if it's right for you. Entrepreneurship requires a certain level of dedication that being an employee does not. That's it, just all there is to it. In fact, I can tell you from experience, when you have an employee who is one day going to make a good entrepreneur. They are the best employee you will ever have, and you know right from the beginning the time that you will retain them is inherently limited. They are either going to make the jump to entrepreneur when they leave you, or they are going to get to a point where they look at the opportunity you've provided them, and they say, you know, nothing personal, but... I've reached a point where I can't learn any more from working here. I can't make a lot more money. Even I can make more money. I can't make a lot more money, and I can't learn any more. And when that person reaches that point, they're going to move. They might even move to another job that pays less because they can learn something more. How do I know? I've employed those people, and I was one of those people. I, at one point in my career, made a career shift that took my income from a high, uh, you know, I don't know how you put it, right? Like high six figures, but high 100s, right? I won't say exactly how much, but, you know, way over 150, but not quite 200 is what I was making. And the job I took as my next job was $45,000 a year because it moved me into a place where for over a year, I went to work every day, and I was surrounded by people that did nothing but optimize website, SEO, and marketing. And to me, the value, and I was probably better than any one of the people that I worked with in that job. In fact, I went in and ran that department for forty-five grand a year. Yeah, that's what it paid. That's what it paid at the time. But I was surrounded by people, each that was a little bit better at one thing than I was. 
And I either learned how to do that thing, or I learned how to effectively outtask that through contracting if I didn't want to do it for myself. And that brought me more opportunity. And within a year, I was back to making back into the six figures. I made another move because I sucked everything I could out of there and went, okay, there's nothing left for me here. There's nothing left for me here, and these people aren't going to pay me what I'm worth. I got what I got. I did what I did for you. Good luck. I hope you make the best of it. See it. And then a few years later, I got on a microphone for the first time, and I said, Hi, folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. And I took everything I learned in sales, in design, development, marketing, and I used it to build my own thing. So when you get that entrepreneurial employee, you either create a path for them where they basically get the benefits of being an employee, plus they get the freedom of being an entrepreneur, or they're going to leave. And sometimes even no matter how hard you try, they're going to leave because they are going to go on to, to something different. And if you're wired that way, it's almost inevitable that eventually you'll figure it out and you'll make it work. And if you are not wired that way, then you're going to have to work for somebody like that. Or you're going to have to design your life so that you can work a work a day, you know, a simple job that doesn't pay that much. And it doesn't matter because you don't need that much. You, those are your kind of your three choices going forward. We're going to talk about all of that today in just a minute. Before we do, I wanted to set the stage with the quote of the day again. This is by uh, Peter Drucker. And he said one time, actually Ritt wrote, and again, this is another one of these authors that we say we're quoting them, we're quoting their writing usually over their speaking. Effective people are not problem-minded. They're opportunity-minded. They feed opportunities and starve problems. They think preventively. Preventatively. Preventatively? Yeah. I... My, I, I Get one sentence in there that I love that made me pick this coin, uh, this this quote today. They feed opportunities and starve problems. I'd like to kind of play with that quote. I would I would just say effective people feed opportunities and starve problems, but then I would be taking out his own words, right? But I think that's like that, that's the upshot of it. Effective people feed opportunities and starve problems. And that's what you have to do in your life, whether it's the things we're talking about today or anything else in your life. When you define a problem, starve it. Th think about everything that feeds that problem that you control. Some things you don't control. The government infringing on liberties. You don't control the government. The, the belief that you do through voting is an illusion. It's actually worse than an illusion. It's a delusion. An illusion, at least you know it's a trick. A delusion means you believe in the magic, right? You don't have the ability to starve the government, but you do have the ability to starve the problems the government creates for you. What is everything that makes that problem magnified for you? Take it away. And then figure out where your opportunities lie, and everything that feeds those opportunities, pour it on the gas, baby. With that, let's go ahead and we'll get back into our discussion. We started yesterday with John Pugliano. Again, we're kind of in the realm of discussing there are some benefits to being an employee here. We'll play about a minute from yesterday's show, and we'll roll through from there. If you didn't hear yesterday's show, this is one where you probably want to go back and listen to episode 2761 first so that these two things connect together. Anyway, with that, here we go. Back to our discussion with John Pugliano. Like, there is a benefit to being an employee, Absolutely, and I guess sort of going down that path, not to say full-time 
entrepreneurial people, but people that are employed that get laid off and they don't want to, they don't, don't want to have their own business. They sh- could possibly look at contract work or, you know, freelance Side work. hustles. I don't care. It, Deliver it, packages for Amazon. Yeah, but Uber even, even, Eats, anything. Well, even in their industry, I mean, there's a, you may not be able to go out and get a $150,000 job because that's not in the company's, um, you know, budget right now to do that. But they may have $15,000 they can pay you to work on a project, right? And if you can get 10 companies to do that, you've now yeah. replaced your income. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to get someone to write a $15,000 check than a $150,000 check. So, and an obligation for an employee going forward because it's, yeah, and, it's and, a big and, deal. People don't understand what it means to hire somebody. If you've never hired anybody, and I don't mean you worked for a company and you were carrying an HR. I mean, like, you sign the paycheck. If you sign the paycheck, or at least you're responsible for the cost center that cuts the paycheck, and you hire somebody, you have a total different view of giving somebody a job than anybody else does. Exactly, because it's, you know, the the harder thing about hiring someone is firing someone. So they don't want to... You know, if, if you're working as a contract worker, they don't have to worry about firing you because you're done at the end of the contract. The the thing I was going to go with that too, though, is you mentioned about having the benefits and things. If your spouse is working and can at least provide your family with the basic healthcare kind of benefits, then your job is so much easier to go out and get contract work because you know your 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 spouse is handling the critical part of you know healthcare and making sure the mortgages pay and that kind of part of it, and then it gives you enough freedom to go out and land that first contract gig. And once you do it once, you can do it twice, right? If you could do it twice, you can do it four times. So it, it, it's getting that one, that first one or two freelance contract that's going to kill you. But if you can get over that bridge and if you have a spouse that can take care of the necessities while you do that, then, um, then maybe you do get 10 or 15 or 20 different contracts going at the same time or, over the course of a year, and and then you then you will never get fired again, because you're, like an entrepreneur, you don't have one boss; you have ten or fifteen or twenty bosses. And it's amazing what can be done. I'm not saying this is necessarily the, the model to follow, but it worked for my buddy. I have a friend that lives out on Sanibel Island, uh, one of my favorite places to be, and I visited him a couple trips ago at his house, and. Uh, he had three computers running in his office and a monitor up for each one and some really technical-looking shit sprawling on them all. I'm like, well, what is this? He says, well, these are all my jobs. And he was being paid based on being logged in to monitor things. And it wasn't like he wasn't doing the job, but it really didn't need him to give his full attention at all times to each one of them. It was, he was monitoring things from a technical standpoint. If something went wrong, he would intervene, like to uh, prevent hacking or something like that. Well, he had three contracts or three companies that he was being paid for all simultaneously. Of good, another good friend of mine that lives out there is my fishing guide. Just turned out, we were talking by text and he, he ended up, he's like, he was moving to a new house. He goes, Hey, my next door neighbor knows you. And I'm like, Really? He's, I'm like, what's his name? And he tells me, and I don't want to give anything away here, so I don't give a name. I said, really? That's great. Like, right, right, right. He goes, yeah, he just bought an island. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like his plan paid off. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, be creative. I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. Uh, last, though, before we move on to some trends I want to finish up with. Right now, it's real easy to get discouraged if you are the person trying to find that next career, replace a job, whatever. One, we're in the middle of a COVID recession, but I have found from about Thanksgiving 
to the end of the new year, the hardest time to get a new job. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there is not a harder time than this. The fourth quarter of the year, um, even a lot of times you'll get the job, but they won't have you start till January. You know, it's just so I would say to people, if you're unemployed right now, hey, you know, God bless you. Uh, we, we are in the middle of covid. We've got seven percent plus unemployment and we're headed into the holiday season. But don't use this time to uh, to be discouraged or to slack off, keep your job hunt up, keep building that Rolodex of contacts, you know, build your social network. While everybody else maybe is partying, enjoying the holidays these next couple months, keep working at it like it is your full-time job. Know, know that you're going to get a lot of no's and people aren't going to want to tell you. Everybody's going to tell you, call me after the first of the year. That's okay. Build, you know, Work now to have so many things at the first of the year that, you know, you'll just you'll hit the ground running. It's, it's kind of that old thing in sales. You know, uh, you, you, you track your cold calling where you know I make 200 phone calls and I get one sale. Well, let's just start making those 200 calls. You know, do it now. Stick with it. Um, we feel your pain. We know that this is not an easy time to be unemployed, and it's it's not going to get better in these next few months. But I'll tell you, COVID is waning as we get into first quarter next year. Uh, we're going to have we're either going to we're going to know who the president is and maybe the same one we have now, maybe a different one. Uh, so we're going to have political, more political stability. We're going to have covid starting to go away. Um, companies are going to be spending more. The service sector is going to be picking up. Airlines will be flying. It's going things are going to get better first quarter of 2021. So hang in there. Try and get a job before then, but hang in there through that. And you'll, I think you'll find you'll be rewarded. What do you think the long-term trends are that people need to be aware of? Biggest thing, like we talked about, COVID killing the dying. Automation's been hasted, uh, hastened by at least five years, easily. I'm s- certain sectors, like we talked about, the telemedicine and stuff, it's probably come up. You know, just because of the bureaucracy of that, that's probably been advanced by at least 10 years. Uh, but I think just on average, digitization is five years faster than it would have been. Um, something to think about in all this, and, and even as we talk about the negativity and the, the unemployment rate and people being unemployed, that doesn't necessarily mean that the stock market's going to crash or that um, uh, you know Wall Street's going to be affected by this. You have to remember that good news on Wall Street isn't necessarily good news on Main Street. And in fact, a lot of times it's exactly the opposite. Um, one of the reasons we're seeing all these permanent jobs being eliminated is because it's cost cutting and it's making these companies more productive and a more productive company that's spending less on employees about 60 percent of a major corporation's costs are the labor costs so when they're getting rid of these jobs that doesn't mean they're selling less products it means they have a better impact to the bottom line so even though all these people are unemployed a lot of companies on wall street are going to be making a lot of money it's going to be very profitable so I would say don't give up on the stock market. A lot of companies are going to make money there. Um, the real long-term impacts, though, are really with the government and the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve has come out and said they're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates until 2023. And because we are in a debt-based economy, a debt-based society, a debt-based currency, low interest rates means that, that they're going to keep greasing the skids of the economy. And again, I, that's why I'm, I'm less worried than a lot of other people about um, any type of big depressions or economic collapses. I just, in, in the studying that I do, I just see the Federal Reserve so prepared 
to spend money, and they already have it. We see them spend $3.5 trillion in 10 months. And really, in that 10 months, I mean, a lot of it was done the first few weeks. They they literally spent about as much as they did over the – not as much, but literally about probably about 85% as much as we spent in the, the first three rounds of quantitative easing. We spent that in March and April of this year. So, I mean, the Federal Reserve is willing to shore up the economy. And um, this is kind of one of those things, too, about being like a, a weatherman, a forecaster. I'm not saying I like this. I'm not saying that I think it's a good thing long term for our, our government or our society. But it is what it is. It is. And they are going <laughs> yeah. to keep spending money. And it is literally limitless. right? The Federal Reserve cannot go bankrupt by definition, right, because they print the money. And the Federal Reserve is not the government. There's something else to think about. The Federal Reserve is not the government. The Federal Reserve, uh, someday we should probably do a whole show on the Federal Reserve, but, I mean, the Federal Reserve is an organization of banks. That The Federal Reserve doesn't own the banks. The banks own the Federal Reserve. That's kind of where you got to get your head around this. The banks are not going out of business because, ultimately, they print the money. And they are literally, literally, they have another $10 trillion that they will interject if they have to. I mean, we're only at $7.5 trillion now. So, I mean, we, I've, I've always said COVID is going to take us to $10 trillion on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. But they are prepared to print another $10 trillion on top of that. Basically, the entire GDP of the U.S. economy, they are willing to create if they have to. And, and they're doing this through, uh, you know, people think that uh, we have to have new rules or laws or something to do this. They don't. They make up all the rules as they go. The things they did with the original quantitative easing weren't, quote, legal before they did them. They just did them. Um, they do a lot of things under the – and you're hearing – this is starting to come up a lot now. Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. When people go back and say to the Federal Reserve, well, how are you doing this? How are you buying junk bonds? How are you um, buying things that are not government debt um, and, and not mortgage-backed securities? And again, you know, 10 years ago, they weren't even allowed to buy mortgage-backed securities, but they jumped into that. So when people – when they're saying – how can you go out and buy junk junk bonds or how can you invest in individual corporations' balance sheets? Well, it's a Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. Right? It authorizes us to make preferred loans either directly or through our banking system, and that's where we're headed with this, and that's how they're going to print the money. It's not going to be it's, – it's not going to necessarily be direct helicopter money. I mean, we are still going to get the $1,200 checks and things like that, that that we did early on with COVID, but it's more going to be a lot of business-to-business lending or business-to-certain community lending, and it's going to come under that Community Act of uh, Reinvestment Act in 1977. We're seeing this with the Bank of Japan. A lot of people are saying that we're going to go to negative interest rates. I don't think we are. I think the U.S. is about – I mean, we're, we're pretty much zero now anyways, but I don't think we're going to dip into the negative part of it because we've seen that fail in Europe, we've seen it fail in, in Japan, and just in the last six months, what the Bank of Japan has started doing is they're offering bank bonuses. Rather than, you know, when they when they had negative interest rates, it, it made it convenient for people to borrow money, but no banks wanted to lend money because they didn't make any money in the process. So now the Bank of Japan is kind of using the same Community Reinvestment Act type thinking, and they're not only having near interest rate loans really cheap for people to be able to afford them, but they're paying the the banks that make the loans a bonus or a commission or an incentive to actually make the loan. And again, that's just going to grease the skids. 
And I know it sounds crazy. And if you like Austrian economics or, you know, Mises, any of that kind of, that kind of thinking, you, you can't get your head around it. But we are in a world where we're making this transition and it has nothing to do with COVID. It's, it's this, what we've been talking about, these permanent job losses. These are not going away. The next 5, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, we're going to, we are going to see massive unemployment. Um, it's just, it's just the numbers. I mean, if you, if you don't believe this is true, look again what digitization has done to other industries. And I'll go back to 20 years ago, 30 years ago when there used to be telephone books and, um, you know, newspapers and all these printed material. Well, automation, digitization got rid of all that. We, we don't have the paper mills. We don't have the, ink companies, we don't have the printers, we don't have any of those things that we had 20 or 30 years ago because we were able to digitize information. Well, now we're able to digitize so many of these other areas of employment where those jobs are going to go away too. You know, Ultimately, labor is going to become free. The governments know this, the elites, the, uh, you know, the oligarchs, they know this is happening. And, and so we're seeing this transition, and the only way to be able to get through this is for the government's to print a lot of money, and you're going to see 100-year bonds, uh, kind of like zero-rate coupon bonds, where they just pay the interest. They don't pay the principal, and the bond will extend out for 100 years. And it'll it'll be designed not um, not to grow the economy, but just to sustain and to gradually allow the economy to shrink. And when I talk about economy, economy I mean the employment economy. They're getting back to Apple Computer. Or Apple, you know, they, they make a whole lot more money and they do it with less people. And that's the way the economy is going to be in 10 or 15 years. The, the overall GDP will probably be larger, but we're just going to use a whole lot less human employees to get to that number. And the government's got to transition there. So look for, look for 100 year bonds and extremely low interest rates for a long time. So let me ask you a, a kind of a different take on all of this automation. How do the mega employers balance automating jobs away and not automating so many jobs away that they don't have anybody to sell to? Because doesn't there don't you get to a point where that those two things come into conflict with each other? Well, and that's exactly though why we're going to have the income redistribution and things like UBI, universal banking, UBI, and I prefer to call it. Uh, GMI, okay. in my book when I talked about it, I, I talk about guaranteed minimum income. Subtle difference, but the, the oh, reason I think no, it's no, a, I got you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like right yeah. now with Social, with Social Security, if I when I retire for Social Security, I'll be eligible for whatever it is, $3,000 a month. Well, they're not going to pay me my $3,000 a month because I have too many other income streams. Yeah. So, so, but what they're saying is that we're going to guarantee senior citizens have you know, two or three thousand dollars a month coming in. Yeah. And you're either going to get that from the government or you're going to have that from your own private sources. And so, so that's where I think we're headed. They're going to say everybody needs to make whatever the number is. 40 grand 50, a year. 40 grand, 50 whatever, whatever it is, it is, right? Yeah. And, and if you, if you make that through your employer, then you won't get any subsidies. Hmm. I guess sort of like Obamacare with healthcare, right? If you, if you can afford to pay the $800 a month premium, you pay it. If you don't, then we'll subsidize it. And the less money you make, the more we'll subsidize. I, that's where we're going to go, I think, with, with employment. We're going to say, if you have a job, good, keep it. If you don't, we're going to, we're going to supplement your income. And do you again, think that's do- part of the push on minimum wage then? Because minimum wage is a stupid argument today, and I'll explain why. 
the current minimum wage at Walmart is $12 an hour. By the end of this year, it will be $15 an hour. I looked it up, John. 1.3% of people who work more than 25 hours a week, not even full-time, 1.3% of people that work more than 25 hours a week for a single employer make minimum wage. Yeah, so when they're ranting and raving about you can't live on $7.75 an hour or whatever minimum wage is now, yeah, I don't no, even no know. No one does. It's irrelevant. We have not raised no it. Does. We have We have not raised it in so long that it did what I always said would happen if you did that. It's become irrelevant. Because if even if you need a job, if I come to you and say, you know, I want you to do this really shitty job for $8 an hour, John, you know what you're going to say? No, thanks. I'll go mow my, my, my neighbor's yard before I do that. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Cash under the table. The, the market will push the thing up. But a lot of these government jobs and a lot of contractual jobs, et cetera, they're actually tied to minimum wage with multipliers thereof. So, right. if you raise minimum wage to $15 an hour, what I've always said is, well, what does the paramedic making $16.50 an hour say? Hold, hold on. Hold on. I, I went to school. I went through all these certifications. I became an EMT. I've been through paramedic one, paramedic two. I've got all this training. I, I risk getting shot at when I go help people. And the guy at Taco Bueno who sweeps the floor makes a dollar fifty. No, no, that's not going to be okay anymore. So you think maybe they're trying to drive core wages up to reduce the uh, the dependency then on the spread? Because what I hear you saying is if they say everybody should make at least sixty and I make fifty five, they give me five grand a year. Right, so the more you can push up the core wage, the less the dependence of the government. But I kind of feel like I don't know if I agree with you. I think they want everybody on it, even if you don't need it, because they just tax it back. But then they have this. I think they want a control mechanism. Like you didn't get your COVID shot. Okay, fine. No, no UBI for you. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, let's let's circle around on that as the last point before we leave. But yeah, I think you're I think you're right in a lot of ways. But I mean, think of it in these terms. We talked about Apple, Apple's their top line sales, almost two hundred eighty billion dollars. That's so there'll be two hundred over two hundred eighty billion dollars next year. They do that with one hundred thirty seven thousand employees. So, the government is looking at this and saying there's too much concentrated wealth. Um, you know, Apple's benefiting from all these other things in society. You've got to take some of that 275 billion or 280 billion and redistribute it. And and we can't do it necessarily through the tax code because, or they can, but yeah. um, you know that that gets us into trouble if we raise everybody's taxes. So we're going to do it in these more subtle ways, like you say, by raising. If we raise the base up, that means that everybody on top goes up as well. We get a bigger spread and. Yeah. Then the and and then we, uh, I think what they're you know obviously what they're also banking on is is that, and this gets to your con- control point. I don't necessarily think, um, and th- and this is going to be one way they keep kicking the can down the road to perpetuate the system. I don't necessarily think it's going to be helicopter money, where they just give everybody money. I mean, think of it in these terms. Yeah, I, I'm we, with you there. We we talked about like healthcare and stuff. Um, the government could pay everybody, all the senior citizens get, say, $2,000, $3,000 a month, Social Security or whatever, yeah. right? They, they could come back and say, well, we're only going to pay you $1,500 cash, but we're going to cover all your medical costs where there's no uh, no, no pay. Donut any hole in, in Medicare or whatever. Yeah, right? any of that. Right. But it's going to be a voucher system, right? So only 
uh, I mean, there's no where there's no cash involved at all. It's a voucher. Mm. Um, so so now it's traded for tax credits or whatever. And and again, you've got to be a preferred vendor or supplier. Um, you got to be affiliated with the right university, you know, your medical school or whatever. I mean, that's that's how I think they're going to control is is by these government vouchers, much <laughs> like they already do with public education and healthcare already. I I think they're just going to try and implement that throughout the whole economy. We we've seen them come in and say, for national security reasons about Huawei, you know, you can't you can't use their telecommunication systems, and. And while I do think that's probably wise for national security, you can see the back end and the control on that. Now they go to Apple and they say, hey, we stopped Huawei, Huawei from coming in with 5G. You guys are going to pick up another you owe 10 us. billion. You owe us. You're going to get another $10 billion in. in uh, Didn't Trump say that about the TikTok deal? Like he was trying to get TikTok to sell? And he was like, you know, Microsoft, they actually wanted Microsoft to buy it. And they're like, if you get that deal, you owe us. You owe us, yeah. Because yeah, we I made it happen. I and I think he was talking more money, but where I'm thinking yeah, about the yeah. control side is then they go to Apple and they say that we want the backdoor encryption to your iPhone. You know, I don't yeah. think it's going to be necessarily so yeah. much about money. That's where I think the control is going to come in. But um, well, now here we, on your we GM, are definitely headed to a more totalitarian police state. Absolutely, and we and we've seen that for a hundred years now. You've made me see bad to worse now because <laughs> I believed it when you come up with two terrible ideas. The government's like, let's Frankenstein that shit, right? Let's put it together. So the guaranteed minimum income was something I never really thought of before. But, you know, you know the little gif where it's like the two, some kind of fairy tale from Disney or something, and it's the two Prince guys, and they're like, why not both? Mm -hmm. So I do think we're heading toward a, a, U, a, a UBI, a universal basic income, like people get at least this much money every month. And my gut is somewhere between $800 and $1,200 a month. That's how much everybody gets no matter what. I could see a hybrid where that's married to, um, and I can see how they sell this too, by the way, to a guaranteed minimum income, a GMI. So you get your $1,200, bucks, your 1000 bucks, your 800 bucks. Maybe it justifies it being lower uh, if you don't work by having this guaranteed hybrid Frankenstein. So now you go get a job, and you work full-time, and maybe that's the requirement. Like the only way you get GMI is if you work a full time job, and you don't hit this minimum threshold. So you take your eight hundred bucks plus your job, and you, they decide that people should make at least seventy grand. You're making sixty. They'll give you ten grand. Like, and then that way, one of the things I actually think would be good about a UBI is you could then justify basically, I don't know if they will, but you could then justify getting rid of all welfare. Like, there is no more welfare. Right. Like, there is, you know, you, you, there's no unemployment, and there's no unemployment either, right? Like, like so then you take that burden off employers. So you, you don't have to have unemployment. Comp if you want unemployment insurance, you buy your own, because you have an underlying 600 bucks a month, 800 bucks a month, you know you're getting no matter what. But somehow you've got to incentivize, because like we're not going to robot everybody's job away. Like if you just say there's a guaranteed minimum income of 50 grand a year, do you know how many people are going to go? Well, okay, I'm not working. Why would I? Like if you don't have to, you're going to have to do some work to get the differential, or I don't see them giving it to you because if it's too high, nobody will work. And we can leave all like 
printing money and how that will screw things up with inflation. We just leave that all out in that argument. Like you still need a certain number of people to get up and go plug themselves into the matrix and get on the bike and pedal every day, right? So you got to have an incentive to work. But man, that sounds horrible. Well, you know, we'll, we'll get to a point though. With, and again, I don't know, five years, ten years, thirty years, when it is, we are going to get to a point like we did with, uh, you know, with desktop publishing and, and you know, digit, digit, I can't say the word, digitization, digitization of data. Um, too many D's in there. Where it's, I mean, think about it. Thirty, thirty years ago, I knew videographers and people that did everything analog. Right? They, uh, photographers, the photographer studios. Sure. Right? It's got to be film. It's got to be. You know, big, uh, what were those, the two and a quarter inch film or whatever it was? Those yeah, big eight millimeter. Cameras. Uh, yeah, it's gotta, you gotta be, cause, cause you just can't capture it on digital. You'll, and you'll never be able to get that quality of it. Well, yeah, we did. It, it took 30 years, but we did it. And it, it, that point will get there with not maybe all, but many, 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 many jobs that we mm -hmm. do today will be automated out of existence. And, What about a robot tax then? And it's not necessarily a robot. It's automated. Well, so like you look at Microsoft or you look at Apple and you say, okay, look, you guys are employing technology right now that replaces 100,000 workers. So we're going to tax you on 25, a quarter of that, 25,000. The Social Security you would pay on those 25,000 workers, you're going to pay that. Because you're not paying them a wage, so you're getting a deal here, right? Do you, do you want us to keep, you know... Huawei out of your marketplace? Do yeah, you? Elon Musk and these guys have said that's where we're headed is is uh, some kind of a robot tax. And it'll it'll be, I mean, right, whether we call it a sales tax, an income tax, it'll maybe it'll be a productivity tax, right? The more you get charged not on, on how many workers you have, but on how much production your factory makes. They're they're gonna to keep the society up, they're gonna have to balance it somehow. And like you know, we talked about the You can't have a bunch of unemployed people because then nobody can buy products. So the company, Apple has to have somebody to sell their iPhones and their services to. So they'll be willing to make deals with the government to make all that happen. The government, of course, wants control. Um, I think the big thing in all this is, and this, this goes, goes to the control, it, it comes down to population, right? We're not saying that people are going to be not needed in the future. We're just saying not as many people. And so it comes to that population control. If the government is going to give you your UBI or GMI or whatever it is, maybe you only agree to having one kid or two kids or no kids or whatever, right? I mean, that's, that's where I think the ultimate control comes in at because we, we don't need, um, it's not that we don't need, we won't be able to support a population of 330 million people if there aren't jobs for them. And so they're going to have to reduce the population. And, and again, we've done that through history. Um, the Chinese had their one-child policy. We go to war a lot of times, I think, to eliminate young men. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really dystopian way to look at things, but I don't see how you get around it. I don't see how you um, – there will be enough creative destruction where new jobs will be created, obviously. Again, that's a whole principle of my book is that it's not – It's not going to be a disaster. We will use technology to create new jobs, but that doesn't happen overnight. And again, look at you can you can look at where I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 1970s. Um, you know, Pittsburgh is still a flourishing city today, but it took them a long time to recover from the Rust Belt. And we're going to see that as a nation. The, the good news on the U.S. side is we have 
enough technology and enough people for us to transition through it. You know, we have the millennials are just coming into their own right now. And, um, and they're not reproducing. They don't want, I mean, that's, you know, my son's a millennial. They have two kids. I'm not saying none. Because whenever you say something, this is generalization. People are like, oh, I know someone with nine kids. No, calm down, right? right? Compared to, let's say, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. The baby boomers, and I'm not talking about them being born. I'm talking about their reproductive habits. Millennials are not reproducing. Gen X, we already slowed it down. Millennials put the brakes on it. Like, life's too expensive to have kids is, is the attitude they have. And, you know, the system has so abused men. And I know some people don't believe that. But it really has. The family court system is incredibly abusive to men. And there's a lot of young men that are in their 20s now. They grew up watching their fathers extorted for money. They watched the family court system basically destroy their family in the name of helping their family. And they're like, I'm not doing it. So the reproduction rate is through the floor. Without immigration right now, we could not sustain, let alone increase our population. Right. And bingo, that's kind of where I was going to go with this. You know, right now, with basically because of um, – Because of immigration over the last 30 years, we have enough millennials to take care of our baby boomers. Everybody says Social Security is going to go bankrupt and we can't afford the baby boomers and all that. I, I don't believe that. We, we have less baby boomers every day. Well, COVID's going to kill them all, so that's solved, right? You that's know, right. We're all going right. to be dead next week. You know. But, we, I mean, we have enough of a work base of millennials from a tax base to support the, uh, the baby boomers. Other countries don't have that. You know, you look at uh, any country, whether it's Asia, Europe, Italy, Russia, uh, Korea, none, none of them, even even China. They don't have they don't have that younger generation to really sustain the welfare state like we do. So, again, that's why I think the U.S. is going to make it through the transition period. But coming through that transition period, we're going to need less people, not more. And to, to the point of immigration. You know, you look back at this country's history. We we shut the doors on immigration in 1923, 1924, something like that. Um, the uh, my people were coming over prior to that. That's when all the Italians, all the Southern Italians from the late the late 1900s, the late 1800s up to the uh, about 1920. You know, this country was flooded with people from uh, Southern Italy, Poland. Uh, some of the uh, Eastern Ukrainians European countries. like me, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, yeah, Georgians, Romanians, yeah, Irish. I mean, it was yeah. That, that's when we all came in. Was that time? And then in like 1923, 24, they said, "Ah, we got enough people." They shut the doors, and we didn't open immigration again until 1965. So, I mean, there was a long period. There was about again a generational period, about a 35, 40-year period where we shut down immigration because we didn't need the people, and. um That's where I think we're headed. I think that's the next step. We, the, that's why I say the president doesn't matter as much as people think it does. I think the the immigration, Trump, you know, all the things that Trump's done with immigration, trying to reduce it or build the wall or whatever, you know, whether he has or not, it's irrelevant. But that that trend is in place. We are going to allow less people to migrate here because we need less of those workers, and that's that's one way we're going to adjust it, and. Again, that'll affect the welfare policies and food stamp policies, and maybe down the road, it's not going to happen overnight, but down the road, maybe we'll start incentivizing people not to have kids. And yeah. um, I think you can and, do that with your your GMI if you maybe add on the other side of it an income cap. 
right? So, of course, there'll be a way out for people like you and me that are creative that operate with corporations. But the general worker, what they might say is, you, we guarantee you this much, but if you participate in it, we cap you at that much. If you cap an income on, on, on a person, then what you end up doing is you cap their desire to, to reproduce. Right. Well, and I know there's dirt poor, again, I know people will always bring up the there's dirt poor people with nine kids. I understand that. There always have been, there always will be. But the general population moderates its reproductive activity based on its ability to provide for them, which, you know what, to be totally fair, is a responsible thing to do. If you make $40,000 a year and you're popping out a child every year and a half, like, I don't consider that taking responsibility for yourself and for that of your children. I, I don't, on a permaculture principle, right? Like, we should bring people into the world based on our capacity to care for them. And that innate human behavior can be tapped into through social control. And one way to do that is to moderate incomes. And, hey, well, everybody gets enough, So, or you know, a really stupid high uh, tax rate on income over. You know, and, 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 that, and, and, and people and say, well, they'll exactly never do that to themselves because they're all billionaires. Okay, please understand they're never going to pay these taxes they charge you. They never have and they never will. The taxes when Kennedy took over the presidency seem stupid high. The marginal tax rate paid by the wealthy is almost, is actually, was actually less at the time than it is today. Right? Even though it looked like it was a 90% tax. Because they're not going to pay it. And if, until you let go of that, you'll never understand what John and I are talking about right now. Yeah, and that's you know that's exactly what China did with their their one child policy yeah. starting in what late 1950s early 1960s. They they basically said um, in, in a lot of even in the rural areas they, they they didn't necessarily say you couldn't only have one kid. They just said we're not paying for it. Right? If yeah. you have two kids, one of them ain't going to public school. Yeah. You know, if you have two kids, you, you, that second one you they're not going to get burnt, you know, born in our hospital where maybe there's some subsidies. You got to pay for it on your own. Yeah. And and um. And, and the other side of that, too, is how did we get to where we are today? How did we get a big influx of both legal and illegal aliens and a big influx of, uh, of lower-income people having a lot of kids? Well, we economically incentivized it. Right? <laughs> we, we made it that way. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, we made we, it. Like you got a tax deduction for every kid you have. Or your welfare payment went up for every kid you had. Or you're – like in Canada – They give, and we have it too, like a, a child credit here, but it's more there, and they actually wanted people to have more kids, so they gave people more money to have more children directly. Here is five grand a year for every kid that you have, right? And like that's, that's a, a demonstration that you can actually control that behavior without going house to house and pulling babies out of mother's wombs or something like that. It's not necessary. People will do it themselves. If we came out with a policy in this country of we're going to have a guaranteed monthly income and we give you more for your first child and your second child, but no more for your third, the average number of children a couple would have would automatically just magically turn to two. Yes. Right? It, it, it would. As, as, as and people that swear have. to God they wouldn't do it, yeah, you know what, if you're 40 and you're kind of past that phase of your life, sure. But the, the 18, 19-year-olds that are going to take traditional families as a unit – Watch it. You, I, I will throw up any amount of silver against you in a bet you want on that bet that it would happen. Yeah, but they wouldn't pay your silver back, Jack. No, nah, they wouldn't. Those, you know how those bets work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't pay you, Ben. 
Where's my money? <laughs> but the, 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 the things we're talking about for people to say that can't happen is, it, is it, it has happened, right? I mean, we've seen it happen in the past. And, and again, the reason we have the population growth that we've had is because we've incentivized, we've incentivized population growth um, in some areas. I mean, a lot of the we talked about the Generation Xers and the, the millennials and stuff. They are having less kids because they've either been socialized to have less kids and or the economic system doesn't reward them. You know, if you've got two, two parents working, then, you know, your, your child care is, is going to be astronomical and you can't afford to have 10 kids. So they've, we, we've limited why a lot of the young professionals don't have kids. Um, and again, I think, I think down the road to compensate for the lack of need for human workers, we're going to see society have some kind of depopulation. And, uh, and it's not, I don't say that because I hate kids because I got five kids and five grandkids and I'd like to have 20 grandkids. But, um, I just, I just see the way the world's going and I, I think we're going to see less people, not more. And I, I don't think people should underestimate how big the contingent of young men are right now that you don't even have to do anything of this with that are just like, I'm not having kids. Um, There's even a movement, MetGow or something, like men going their own way or something like that. And I'm not a fan, but I also understand. I I grew up at a time when divorce became normal. And I think if you create a system that can be abused, it will be abused. So I'm not saying that women inherently are prone to abuse the, the situation. I'm saying when you create a system where it's easy to do so and it's beneficial to do so, and maybe it is very hard to not do so, you're going to get a lot of abuse of that system. Because I've seen women who have two kids with a guy get divorced, they're getting child support plus alimony, they find a new guy in their life, they live together, but they don't get married so that that money will keep coming in. Absolutely. I, and I've seen it over and over again. Over and over again. And you know, the big thing I see nowadays with, with people, in that, uh, people in that 20 to 30 age group is uh, student loan debt. If you you start if you out married, there like I'm not doing this right like yeah well they're like if you get if they get married and they have two incomes then they have to pay more on their student loan debt that's true or if one if one of them has a lower paying job um, they can they can either defer it or pay a whole lot less on their student loan debt and so they don't want to bring their household income up they they want to keep it low so they just they just live together and have kids or, or just live together now I'm not for state solutions but if I was I could solve the student problem for a college immediately. Very, very easily. First thing I would do is put a cap on it on the cost of an education for the for uh, for government backed education. Then I would make not free college, but zero interest loans to all students, with payback through wage garnishment up to a percent of income that automatically happens. Your employer has to do it just like they have to do uh, withholding for federal income tax, and you'd be done. That whole problem would just disappear. It'd go off into nowhere. And if you want to p spend more on your education than we're willing to loan you, then you got to come up with your own money. But see, so you want a practical system that will educate people and prepare them for employment. Correct. That's not, that's not what the system No. Does. No. We need, we need 45 grand a year for gender studies degrees. Well, you know, you got to think about this. A lot of this, again, getting back to the government control, it's bread and circus, right? Yeah. I mean, we, what are we going to do with a bunch of, um, 20-year-olds that can't get a job, well, let's keep them in school. Let's keep them in school till they're 26 and on their parents' insurance till they're 26. Like, they, they, and, and people act like that's a good thing today. And I'm like, hey, hey, I don't hey, even hey, understand hey. that. 
I don't understand being dependent on your parents when you're 20, let alone 26. You just brought up a perfect point about when we were talking about the benefits and how are they going to juggle this and redistribute it. Yeah. The government didn't want to shell out money to take care of all the uninsured kids in their 20s, right? Yeah. And they and they also didn't want them to all go out there and not be uninsured because when they show up at the emergency room, the government ends up paying for it. Yeah. So what did so what did they do? They said, "We'll let everybody st- if you're, you know, if you're uh in college or whatever, I don't even know if you have to be in college. You can stay in your parents' uh health thing till you're what, you're 27, 26, something 26 like that." 26 years old right now, yeah. So so who picked up the cost? Corporate America by funding all those all those uh you know, Basically, kids 18 to 26 or 27, their medical costs were all put onto the S&P 500, right? All those yeah. corporate corporate companies. And the this government just washed their hands of it. And that's this, that's how that's how nefarious these guys are. This thinking's not new, and it kind of totally unrelated but related world. When I got out of the army, um, I had the GI Bill and college fund and all, so I thought about going to college for a while because I had money to do it with, but it wouldn't have been enough to pay for everything. So you'd need student loans. So I was interviewing with a college admin, you know, admissions person. And so they started talking to me about student loans and applying for that and all. And I'm like, well, I've got money to start out with. And, and But I was like, oh, so how does all this work? And they're like, well, it goes to your parents' income. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, my parents' income? Right, because I'm 21, almost 22 at this point. I have a job. I've been paying my own bills since I was 16. My parents' income is completely irrelevant to me. Right. And... And they're like, well, aren't they still claiming you as? And I'm, I'm, I'm 21 years old. And they're like, aren't they still claiming you as a dependent? No, they aren't. They live 2,000 miles away from me. Well, do they help you with your bill? No. Like this person who was a college administ- uh, admissions person, and this is what about 94, 95, somewhere in there, could not comprehend. That they had a you know a young twenty something in front of them that actually paid all their own bills and had for years, they it would not go in the brain like you could tell that it was like a, we call it cognitive dissonance today right like there was mental anguish at trying to process this is a twenty one year old kid that's paid all their own bills since you know they were in high school right they, they could it could so I imagine that that today. Like that person might actually have an aneurysm, right? Like <laughs> if they were confronted with a 21-year-old saying, "No, I no, I can't get student loans off my my parents' income. They, I, I, I have my own job, I have my own bills, I pay for everything, and I'm just looking at bettering my career." They wouldn't know what to do with themselves, and that is another social control that you don't even like. I didn't know that was a social control. Looking back on it, I'm like, "Oh, it was totally a social control." Yep, that's exact. That's exactly right. And um, we see now I, your I, head I, hurts. <laughs> no, no, thinking, I, I'm just a guy. One of my one of my kids that came back from their freshman year of college, and she said to me, she said, "Dad, I'm the only one here that's paying for my education. Everybody else, it's either the, they've either got government loans, government grants, or their parents are paying." She said, I'm, "I mean, she was shocked. She didn't know because I I raised yeah. my kids with an expectation that if you want to go to school, you sh- that's great, you should go, but Dad's not paying for it. You need to fund it yourself." And she just you know, that was her paradigm. That's the way she grew up, and she just couldn't believe that no one else lived that way. Well, and, and like, if you want independence, you have to do that because I can't tell you how many young people I've talked to about being unhappy with their choices in college, but they're like, well, I have to keep doing it. And you're like, why? 
Because my parents are paying for it, and if I don't do it the way they want it, they'll stop paying. Anytime exactly. someone is paying your bills, they have their thumb on your back. Anytime. Every, even if they love you, if they love you, sometimes it's worse because they think they know what you need. I mean, parents, we always struggle with that if we're doing our job right. Am I, am I doing too much here? Am I interfering here where I shouldn't be? Because, I mean, I get on my wife sometimes. My son will call with a question about life, you know, something in general. It's not like a big philosophical. It's like a simple thing. It's like he's 31 years old. Tell him to Google it. <laughs> right? Or, you know, like, or it has a problem with his cable. Tell him to call a cable company, not his mom. You know, and I feel like I was tough. And I wonder, like, the kids that no, they didn't have that foot in their ass. Like, Jesus, are you going to be, like, 60 years old and, like, calling the old folks home where your mom is to ask her how to get your cable fixed? Like yeah, those are the those call, are the people call, call nine one one right the pizza delivery didn't show up so they, they call nine one one or you know like uh, your power's out don't call me call the electric company I can't do anything to help you and, and like that happens all the time right now and that is that makes me very worried with the things we're talking about with guaranteed income universal basic income automation social controls and this generation and the next one are going to be making all the decisions for you and me as we age and, you know, roll around in wheelchairs and drool on ourselves. Yep. The, uh, but the, but the oligarchs control everything and they'll want to orderly. I think they're going to want an orderly, uh, an orderly outcome of the, of the economy. So I do too. because it's in their best interest. So it's not, it's, that a, I it's trust in their them. best interest. It's not that I trust them. It's that, I trust that they want their lives to stay as good as their lives are, right? And that that means that the the, the plebes, all of us, have to have a certain amount of contentment and, and 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 structure and a belief that we have control, or people's heads start coming off. Like I think one of the greatest strategies of democracy is that it, it keeps us from cutting the heads off politicians. And I know it might be a little bit radical for you, but for me, it's pretty not radical. Like because this belief that you're ne if you vote harder next time, Harry and Lloyd, we can make things better. We let them get away with things that if we didn't have that illusion in front of us, we wouldn't let them get away with. Like back in the days of monarchy, as bad as it was, kings knew. Wait a minute, I can have a few people's heads cut off, but if I push this too far, and all those people with the pitchforks. You know, my archers can only cut so many of them down before they come over the wall and they throw me into a cauldron of boiling oil. And that can and did happen throughout history. Like that, that was some level of like, even as a monarch with all power, I've got to try to keep my kingdom somewhat happy and, and life somewhat ordered or I'm going to go in the cauldron or get thrown off the wall of the castle. I think the technocrats in a different way, have the same problem. Like, you have to keep quality of life to a certain level or you are going to have the zombie apocalypse and, like, the purge is going to be a thing and we're not going to be purging the guy next door, we're going to be purging the Elon Musks. Absolutely. And and it's just a digital plantation, right? I mean, yeah. we, they, they, keep, they, they, they whip the slaves just enough to not kill them. Um, the good, the good news in all this though is that they, uh, there's always an outlet for creative people. And, you know, and as bad as things are, you know, my life's never been better. I've, I can see where it, broadly my, my personal freedoms have been 
degraded over the years. I can see where, you know, government has, has taken more and more of my freedoms away. But on the other hand, I have more freedom now than I ever had. Uh, but it's not because the government granted it to me. It's because I found ways around the system. And, you know, you have too with the way you've structured your life. Yeah, and I so, want to talk uh, about opportunity as we finish here because I think there's yeah, a lot that's of where opportunity. I'm that's, that's where I'm optimistic. But, but re before we even go there, like to your point, I saw uh, like most polls I ignore, right? I saw a poll that flabbergasted me recently. 55% of Americans – say that their life is better today than it was when Donald Trump took office in 2016-2017. In the middle of a freaking pandemic, 55% of people, and this seems to be a legitimate poll, and I don't care if that number's 45%. For people so to hard, say that in hard. the middle of a pandemic, that says something about And I bet you if you didn't poll like the lockdown lunatic states like New York, that number would go up. For that to happen is, is kind of like what would that number be if there wasn't a pandemic right now? And, and well, what does that say about the fact that your life quality can go up? And then if that's going on for the average duh that doesn't really understand that no, it's not. What does that spell for like kids like my kid, your kid, my grandkid, your grandkids? that have old farts like us schooling them in opportunity, like how much opportunity is really going to be there? Yeah, I, I, I think there's going to be a huge untapped amount of opportunity because people don't know it's there. Right? They just don't know. You have so many people that are, that are oblivious to the opportunity because they're depending on someone else or they're, like we talked about, they're just, uh, you know, they're so entitled that they don't, they don't see the opportunity. They expect to be given something rather than go out and work for it. So I, I think as, 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 although opportunities will be limited, there'll be less people that know how to go get them. And, and again, I don't know that it's ever changed. But, you know, my grandfather left Italy because he saw the tyranny of, of what was happening there in, you know, pre, pre Mussolini, pre fascist Italy. He got the heck out of there. Mm. Uh, he went someplace where he could, he could build a better life. Um, there were you know, a lot of Italians stayed though. <laughs> they, they, they stayed and suffered through it. He left to have a better opportunity. And so, you know, I think to some degree, maybe it's in our genes. We, we know how to go get opportunity. And no matter what systems put in front of us, we'll figure out a way, uh, to make, you know, we'll figure out a way to do it. The, the, the whole thing with, with the, again, the suppression of liberties and the intrusion of government, even, even having said all that, I look at things like conceal carry and despite all the controls and all the regulations that they've done with gun control that we, you know, we're never there. When I was a kid, I mean, almost every day of my life, I had a BB gun and a, I had a pocket knife, yeah. you know, some kind of a knife either on my belt or in my pocket. And I had a BB gun. You know, I, I never stabbed anybody. I never shot anybody. I used to walk down the road and wave to neighbors with a .22 on my back when I was 13 years old. Yeah, yeah. No one cares. Just, no one cares. Except the neighbor once in a while be like, hey, come here. We got a groundhog yeah. in the backyard, right? I mean, that was like – today the ATF would be roping out of a helicopter or something. Exactly. You know, and, and we, I, we we had .22s. Uh, all the kids I knew had .22s. I lived in the suburbs. I wasn't as rural as you. Yeah. So we couldn't walk down the street with it because you couldn't shoot it. There's no place to shoot, shoot it. Yeah. We, we had them. But we all shot BB guns and carried knives. And, you know, that's just unheard. You, you get locked up today if you did that. But having said that, how many women do you know that are concealed carrying? I mean, I – 
How many places can you. you do it today that you couldn't, as, as free as we were, our parents couldn't do, couldn't do what we're doing with concealed exactly. carry? Exactly. You know, well, so that's where I look at things. I look at, you know, the government, they try and overreach. They try and hold people down. But people have a desire for freedom, and they and they go get it. And, and again, look at that. Honestly, I know. I mean, I'm shocked at the number of women that open their purse and show me their gun. It's like, yeah. oh, wow. In my day, I never knew one woman when I was a kid. You know, no mom I knew had a gun. Yeah. Husbands all had guns. but I, And to carry it in her – I mean, they may have a gun in the house, but to carry it in her purse, to leave it when she went out, out of the house. Yeah, there's a lot happen. of soccer moms that if you try to jack their SUV, will shoot you today. Yeah, right? so that, that, that's, that's why I remain optimistic. I think, well, I think we're going to use technology to – to circumvent the government. You know, I call them clowns, right? And the clown that comes to your birthday party, what does he do? He blows that big, long balloon and he turns into a balloon animal. So it's like a yep. perfect analogy for the ass clown circus. So if you take one of those big, long balloons and you squeeze one end of it, what happens? It, it gets yeah. bigger on bigger another end of it. Yeah. If you squeeze another end of it, it gets bigger in the middle. Like, no matter how much you squeeze it, you just move parts of it to different places. If you squeeze it too hard, it breaks. That's what liberty in this country has become. They can squeeze it, but if there's not some offset and they squeeze too hard, there's enough people in this country that will drag people out of the White House or out of the Capitol building and hang them from a tree if you push us too far. And they haven't beaten that out of us yet. I may be less optimistic than you about how long that revolutionary spirit is going to stay with us. I, I, I really look at the damage that the educational system has done in the last specifically 25 years. And I, I look at kids like my nephew, who is a smart young man, who was one of the most liberty-oriented young people I've ever known, who's now in his third year of law school and comes home and tells me about white privilege. <laughs> and I just go like, if they can do it to him, then what are they? And I just wonder how many of them will, because there's also the old saying, like if you're if you're not a liberal in in your early 20s, you're heartless, and if you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, you're stupid, right? right? Like like that's 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 a natural progression, but it it just seems different than what I remember. Well, the indoctrination is strong, and the social pressures. I mean, that's the that's the way they do it. But um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I just think there's enough there's enough freedom innate in people that uh, it'll never be a majority, right? It never yeah. was. You only yeah. need twenty twenty thirty percent of the population to to find their own way, and the other yeah. the other people are always just lemmings. Anyways. Well, and that's the opportunity, right? Because like I'm a really slow runner, even when I was in great fantastic shape and I could run 10 miles no problem when I was in the military I was still slow as a sprinter but you know I can win the 100 yard dash tie a rope around everybody's two legs and limit their stride to 30% of their full stride right and then all of a sudden Jack Spierko becomes the fastest 100 yard dash guy around I think a lot of this hobbling this intellectual hobbling that has been done for the, 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 the kids that are being homeschooled and unschooled and outschooled and conditioned to think differently. Like, that's what's happened. Like, since they're hobbling everybody, then all of the people who aren't intellectually hobbled have this potential to be rock stars in whatever they do because 
it's it's what's the thing from Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Harrison Bergeron, with the bands controlling people's capability. It, it's really what they've done is they've limited not the potential but the results that people have. And if everybody's results are voluntarily limited, the person that's like, I'm not doing that, they have this immense opportunity to to, to like see the opportunity to act when others won't. I think that's always been the case, but the more the more willingly hobbled the masses become, the more opportunity there is for the uh, the person that chooses to be exceptional. Yep, and you ha- so and and that creates just like in permaculture, that creates the environment on the edge, right on the fringes. We uh, it's kind of where where freedom and uh, tyranny meet. That's that's where I think the entrepreneurial people and the people with motivation are going to uh, they'll be able to find a way to survive. In a lot of ways, it's if you think back to the Cold War days and make that analogy, mm. it's like um, the Scandinavian countries. They were always on the periphery of the uh, Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union never took them over and over, you know, never made them satellite countries because they needed a way to interact with the West. Yeah. You know, so a lot of the things they bought, a lot of the trades, all that came through the Scandinavian countries. That's why you know, a lot of times you look at Scandinavian countries and say, oh, they're, they're socialists, they're you know, Sweden's socialist or whatever. Heck no, they're, they, they've got that tradition kind of because of geography of where they're at, and they've got kind of homogenous um, demographics. But shoot, those people are hardcore capitalists if you look at oh, yeah. Yeah. If you look at their business model, I mean, they they just made money by basically selling to both sides in the Cold War, yeah. And um and and that's that's where I think the opportunity is going to be for the future. It's on that edge between freedom and government, or you know, freedom and tyranny, and and people will people will be able to figure. And again, it's it's never been easier. I mean, the the to to um we talk about starting a business, but even getting a job, right? We're talking about using LinkedIn, and I mean, it's horrible right now if you're unemployed. But you know, I've been unemployed. Earlier in my lifetime, when I was you know my 30s, 35, I didn't have LinkedIn. I didn't have an internet where I could go look up hiring managers or find headhunters or recruiters or be able to find. I used to have to go to the library, you know, to look up uh, old stale uh, information of, of businesses to yeah. find out, yeah. you know, information on business. Or you bought you know, the I, Sunday paper. You saved up to buy the Sunday paper. Sunday had, paper and get get the one ads. You the one ads, right? Like. And today, let's say that, like, back in the day that John Pugliano, for whatever reason in his life, thought, you know what, I'd really love to live in Colorado. There's a lot of opportunity around Denver. I'll look for a job in Denver. And then you'd find a job and you could move to the Denver metro area if that's what you wanted to do for whatever reason. Well, today you can just move to Denver. And tomorrow morning you can be delivering packages for Amazon, doing uh, DoorDash, maybe doing some Uber as as, as COVID wanes, et cetera. There's jobs where you're or like contract work where you can like put sheds in people's backyards. And even if you're actually an aerospace engineer, you can move there, be there, have an area of operations, have income coming in and then find a job. Like anybody that doesn't understand how different that is just wasn't alive when you and I were coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you be couldn't to, do that. I couldn't do that or even just be able to research it. Right? If I was unemployed in, in Atlanta, I didn't know what was going on in Dallas. No. You, just, you, you didn't know. No. Now I could I could be unemployed in Atlanta. I could be doing Zoom interviews in Dallas. I could be, you know, emailing people and all that virtually virtually free. I mean, just yeah. you're doing it from your smartphone. Do it from um, your phone. Do it from so, the so library. The I mean, jeez. The opportunities are are immense. Absolutely. Well, John, how can uh, people that want to like go? Yeah, this guy's pretty cool. This Pugliano guy I found on Survival Podcast. 
and I like his expert segments and all, but how do I, I get more from him? Hey, they can check out my podcast. It's called Wealthsteading Podcast, like homesteading, but it's Wealthsteading. Um, my, my firm, my investment firm is called Investable Wealth, so you can find me there at investablewealth.com. Um, and yeah, listen to the segments. I, I love doing the, uh, the TSP segments. Everybody can hear me there. And uh, looking forward to the workshop. We are. Hey, just a quick call out to all the ham radio operators in the audience. Huh. We are going to have a uh, ham radio station set up at Nine Mile Farm. Awesome. Dur- during the workshop, so uh, uh, there'll be times during the day or in the evening where we'll be we'll be calling people on uh, twenty meters and forty meters. And so, you ham radio guys, look at look towards social media. We'll we'll tell you where to be, and maybe we can get Jack on the radio too and uh, work yeah, a pile up or something. It could happen. It could happen. Well, I John, think we can make it happen. I, absolutely. I appreciate you being with us today, John, and spending all this time with us. My pleasure, Jack. Love the community. Uh, happy to come on. And that was just a great interview. I mean, it's one of those things that you know it's going to be a great interview when I bring John on, and you know it's going to go long. And as I said, what I ended up doing yesterday when we were in the middle of this and I realized how long it was going to go is let's just roll with it. Let's just take it out and make it into two episodes, and I think it worked out really well for that. Uh, that meant that you did not get to hear the interview today that I actually did today for our planned interview this week, if that makes sense. Anyway, you will hear it tomorrow, and it's going to be cool. I have tomorrow, we're going to go to, do, do something totally different and get out of this world of ass clown chicanery and gloom and doom and all of it with something that's fun. How about fishing? We're going to do, for the first time ever, interviewing a professional fishing guide tomorrow we're going to talk about it from a standpoint of fishing and being a guy but we're also going to it will pull back a little bit to what we're talking about today because we'll talk about like is that a potential career choice for you it might be and i'll even have some thoughts for you tomorrow on why the way that the individual we're going to interview tomorrow his name's darren by the way is doing it may not be the way you need to do it I'll, i'll i'll remind you of something that i found somebody doing recently that was amazing and i just wonder how many opportunities like this there are Not necessarily fishing, but, okay, here's this thing that people like to do that they maybe need somebody to guide them doing so that they can get more enjoyment out of, especially people that have what all of us have a chronic limit on right now, time. Time. I've I've been teaching this for 12 years, guys. The most valuable thing you can get from a customer today is not their money. Money is a commodity that circulates in the trillions of dollars annually. And it, it, it's spent freely and easily all the time, wastefully even. Time, time is more rigorously guarded by the individual. Now, they might also waste that time, but where they waste it is hugely based on preference. So when somebody takes a vacation to a place and they want to take their kids fishing, for example, they want to catch fish. So they want to go with someone that knows how to do that. But how many other niches, how many other vertical markets like this exist? Especially in kind of these, you know, really tourist friendly but not crowded locations that are a great place to, you know, build a new life right now. We'll talk about all that tomorrow. Before we get to that though, let's go ahead and wrap up today. And let's remind you guys that one of the ways you can help support this show is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. First thing I want to remind you about is yesterday I had the Anchor Q10 uh, headphones on. And I mean, thousands of those have been bought by members of this audience. Zero complaints. They're on sale yesterday for like 32 bucks. They're still on sale today. 
They usually don't stay on sale for very long, but I just wanted to rem and it's going to go out in the email today again as a kind of a follow-up. But I do have a new item of the day for you today. It's Sweet Drops Liquid Stevia. I don't use this product as much as I used to because I discovered the Lakanto monk fruit sweetener that is a monk fruit erythritol blend. But I still use Sweet Drops a lot, especially if it's like a cold tea because even the Lakanto sweetener just doesn't dissolve really great when it's going into an ice-cold tea that's coming out of the refrigerator or something like that. And drops don't have to dissolve because they're dissolved. Stevia is one of the great natural sweeteners. People ask me at times about it and say, well, like, is it just better for you than sugar but still bad? No. It is an herbal extract. It has no calories. It's not like an artificial sugar. It just... To humans, it tastes really sweet. I'm sure to some other critters, it, it doesn't taste sweet at all. It takes a little getting used to, but I think that's true of anything that's even slightly different than something you're accustomed to, especially something like flavor. But what I really recommend with it is when you're using it, don't use a bunch of it. Take whatever you're going to consume and put one drop in it, mix it up, and taste it. And then if you think it needs more, give it one more drop. And usually, unless you're doing like a pitcher of something, like two drops is a lot. And if it doesn't taste sweet enough, if it doesn't taste sweet enough to you, try something. Try something. One, just drink it that way. Be a big boy. Put your big boy pants on. Quit whining and quit destroying your body with too much sugar and drink it for a week that way, like your coffee, your tea, whatever. And you might find after doing that for like a week that all of a sudden it tastes plenty sweet, you've just adapted to the new type of sweetness. The other thing I would suggest is take whatever it is that you're sweetening, assuming it's not like a lemonade or something where you need to sweeten it, and don't sweeten it. Take your coffee without sugar for a week. Then add one drop of that shit, and you'll be like, wow, that's you, you might end up getting like the ability, a, a dropper that can do a smaller drop. It, it will surprise you. What happens to your taste buds when you quit over-exciting them with too much sugar? And on this note, this is a product, this is a survival podcast, this product can save your life. The number one cause of chronic disease in the United States today is the overconsumption of sugar and carbohydrates, which are the same thing, full stop. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to tell you you need to go keto. I'm just telling you, you take every chronic disease today, and you can see the major contributing factor to its increase over 100 years ago is sugar, period. And this applies to your children. In an article today, I give you some ideas for how to use this stuff in a way that kids will love. Because just because your kid is shoving down four Cokes a day and doesn't get fat, doesn't mean it's not damaging their body. And what they're going to end up is as a 20-something addicted to sugar with diabetes before they're 30. You could do something about it. This is one option there. One more thing on um, artificial or alternative sweeteners, things like erythritol, monk fruit, stevia, all of it. You'll find in a lot of things that you're wanting to kind of concoct, like if you're making low-carb chocolate cake or something like that, which we should not be eating every day, by the way, but it is a nice treat from time to time, that you will get a better result blending two or more of them together. And if you look at all of the kind of best-selling low-carb, keto-friendly things that are like substitutions, which, again, you cannot overconsume them because they are, they're better, but they're not perfect. But all of the ones that are like top sellers, when you read the ingredients, it'll be like stevia and monk fruit or stevia and erythritol. Right? It's always combinations because they kind of offset each other with a little bit of that taste that we're not used to. 
So I'm fine, for instance, using stevia in my tea. Don't care. I, I've gone to coffee with nothing, but if I do want to sweeten a coffee, like I do it, like a, sometimes I'll do the blender with a like a bulletproof coffee with chocolate in it or whatever. I'll use the monk fruit uh, Lakanto blend. But you will find that by doing different blends, you can make almost anything really taste great and not be shocking your body with sugar and blowing up your insulin resistance and damaging your organs and killing yourself. Because that's what this country is doing. It's killing itself. Everybody's flipping out about COVID. This year, this year, over 300,000 people will die directly from obesity. That's not they had a heart attack and they were fat. Like You will be able to say this person died because they were fat. 300,000. And long after COVID's gone, and it will be, those people will still be dying. That number will stay consistent or grow. Take your life back. Get rid of the sugar. That's all I'm going to say. Even if you're going to be, you know, a person that eats a, you know, a, a more standard American diet and you're going to consume carbohydrates at higher rates than I recommend, still get the pure sugar out of your life. It will make your life and your kids' life better. All right. With that, again, shop at tspaz.com. Stevie or not, whatever you do, you can help support us. Let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Um, I want to look for um, a song today that kind of really fit with the theme we were talking about, which is how you adapt to going forward. And I, I almost didn't pick this song. I, I went off John Adams' list today. Um, the song he had for today, I'm probably going to play tomorrow. It's a really great song. It just didn't fit today at all. Um, I almost didn't pick this, not because it wasn't a great song for today, but because it's been so damaged by the frickin' pharmaceutical industry trying to sell you drugs with it. Uh, but it's Fleetwood Mac's Go Your Own Way. And it, this song is about kind of like a realized breakup. Like, hey, look, I, I can't be in this relationship with you. I am not good for you, and you're not good for me long term. So let's just part friends, basically. Which means never talk to each other again in most of those situations, by the way. Um, but to me, this song fits today because that's exactly the summary of advice that John and I are giving you. You're going to have to make your own way in this new world. Because from our quote of the day yesterday, if, if, if you don't, someone's going to do it for you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Change